0: Welcome to She Wrote That. Here, our goal is to uplift hardworking female writers, bloggers, authors, journalists, and storytellers. Each episode features a conversation with a different female writer, where we dig deep about everything writing-related, from being a woman in the industry, to developing stories, to editing style, to mentorship. Thank you for joining me for episode nine of She Wrote That. I'm your host, Charlotte Barnes. I am so excited to be back today with another great guest. Joining me today is poet Jenna Rose Nethercott. Her book, The Lumberjack's Dove, was selected by Louise Glick as a winner of the National Poetry Series for 2017. is also the lyricist behind the narrative song collection Modern Ballads, author of Leanna Fled the Cranberry Bog, A Story in Cootie Catchers, and is a Mass Cultural Council Artist Fellow. Her writing has appeared widely in journals and anthologies, including The American Scholar, Bomb, The Massachusetts Review, The Offing, and Pink. A born Vermonter, she tours nationally and internationally performing her works and composing poems to order for strangers on an antique typewriter with her team, The Traveling Poetry Emporium. Her first novel and short story collection are forthcoming from Knopf Vintage. We discussed everything from her writing process to how she paid her way through Europe by writing poems to order, to what inspired her poetry book that won the National Poetry Series, The Lumberjack's Dub. Stay tuned to hear our discussion. So, tell me about how you first became interested in writing. So, yeah,
1: I um, grew up in a very literary household. My dad is a writer as well. Uh, His name is Michael Nethercat, and he writes all sorts of things, uh, plays and poetry and novels and short stories. And so ever since I was really little, I would be read a bunch of pieces and always really encouraged Mm -hmm. to write and tell stories. And told a lot of bedtime stories so it was always just sort of a part of my environment ever since I was really small.
0: That's so cool it's so fun to grow up in a literary household I mean my dad used to be a journalist and he would read Hemingway to get my brother and I to sleep I think it's a definitely a fun experience.
1: (laughs) Totally yeah and we actually um grew up in like a touring clown family as well. So, like, my dad oh, wow. was a clown, and my brother and my father and I would go on the road every summer in this like traveling clown troupe that we had, like the family act. So, it was definitely an artful <laughs> upbringing. And I always think of that as normal. Like, I kind of forget that most children aren't professional clown tots. <laughs> <laughs> Yet here we are. <laughs>
0: Do you think those experiences and growing up in that household, do you think you have any impactful experiences from your youth that still influenced your writing today?
1: I'm, I mean, I'm sure there are. I I can't think of any like specific memories where I'm like, oh yes, this is the one memory I return to again and again to write about. <laughs> but I feel like uh, growing up, traveling and touring like that has really influenced my writing. And I guess mm-hmm. when I say influenced my writing. I mean, influenced my personhood, too, because I don't feel like I can distinguish between the two, really. Like, my writing is an extension of just me as a person, and they're kind of two sides of the same coin. So, I mean, yeah, of course, (laughs) like, my upbringing and my childhood and my family all impacted who I became, which then impacted what I write about. Uh, Yeah, It's, it's hard to tease the threads apart, from Mm -hmm. a whole life and kind of pinpoint, like, oh, yes, this is what correlated to this. Yeah, but I definitely have a strong clown energy (laughs) exuding (laughs) from my person and my writing at all
0: times. (laughs) No, that makes sense. So you went to Hampshire College and you majored in poetry, theater, and folklore, which sounds fascinating. What was that like?
1: Yeah, so it was um so Hampshire College is an interesting institution in that it's sort of an experimental school where you build your own major and it allows for a certain amount of like creative flexibility which I used to create what in retrospect is perhaps the dumbest sounding concentration of all time, but the my, my technical degree, which I titled myself at age 19 and thought sound very refined, was <laughs> um, Explorations in Storytelling Through Playwriting, Poetry, and Performance. It's hmm. not the quippiest title. But, <laughs> um, but what was so incredible about it was that I was able to sort of focus on the... Uh, focus on the threads between different disciplines it's an inherently multidisciplinary school and I'm a big believer in the idea that everything on the planet is multidisciplinary like nothing exists within a vacuum Um, and I mean on a base level as creatives we have this sort of fallacy where we think that you're supposed to just like create something from nothing or approach the blank page and then just conjure up an invention out of the air and that's just so far from the truth. But if you're working on like an interdisciplinary practice, you're able to see how, yeah, how ethnology and anthropology and folklore then connects into sociology and the way that people behave, which then means that you can draw ties between how storytelling and how writing is a mirror for society and for our cultures and our behaviors. And it creates this richness to everything that you do because you're able to sort of see where it leads and see where it comes from. Uh, And theater as well was a part of that. I've sort of stepped away from theater in my later years. (laughs) I say my later years as if I'm reaching the sunset of my life. I will be turning 30 (laughs) this year. (laughs) And in my head, I'm like, well, that's it. I'm done. Um, But yeah, the, the idea of how like performance as well as page work, as well as just Like, the stories we tell as cultures are all interlaced. Uh, Yeah, so I just... It it allowed me to kind of get obsessed with all the things I wanted to get obsessed with. Uh, And then I did one year of my degree at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland where I specifically focused on supernatural folklore and studied the... Essentially, the sociological function of supernatural belief. So basically, the idea that, like, we tell stories so that we can just, like keep ourselves together mentally and societally, which as a writer makes me feel good because I'm like, oh, yeah, it's necessary to tell stories. It's a part of the fabric of our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I feel like I got a pretty well-balanced education between those two institutions. Hampshire was a little more floofy in its approach mm-hmm. uh, and had more creative opportunity but less sort of traditional structure and then edinburgh provided me with that kind of traditional structure and background um with less of the creative side so putting the two together it felt pretty complete
0: that's so interesting it yeah i definitely agree with you that everything connects obviously especially when it comes to writing but that's so cool because acknowledging that and then being able to acknowledge so many different facets of that whether it's regarding your characters, regarding the structure, regarding the stories you tell in your plot. That's just so interesting that you got to study that.
1: Yeah, it was was a good time. And (laughs) oddly is applied now every day that I work, which I think is rare for that kind of uh, academic pursuit. I feel very lucky Mm -hmm. that I get to just keep asking those questions and keep digging into those same mythologies
0: yeah yeah, that's pretty cool. And so obviously, you're a writer today. You're a poet. So walk me through what a typical day of writing is like for you.
1: Oh, I'm so right now, I'm deep in the middle of writing a novel. I'm like near the end mm-hmm. of it. It's my first novel, and I don't know how to write a novel. I don't <laughs> I don't know what is going on. So like the idea of a typical day of writing for me really doesn't exist. And Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of discourse around the idea that like, oh, to be a writer, you have to sit down every day and write. And I don't Mm -hmm. agree with that necessarily. I think, I mean, okay, so for me, I am a writer who works kind of in bursts. And I don't mean like, I sit down and write a ton and then stand up bursts. I mean, like long Mm -hmm. stretch bursts. So for example, I will have an idea for a project, and then I'll spend like, Four months obsessed with this project And doing nothing but working on this piece of writing And I just like bury myself In this world and then when I finish it I emerge from it and I don't write a thing For like six months (laughs) And so I end up with this really Interestingly divided year often And I think a lot of it comes from The fact that I'm really crap At dividing like my Work life and my Personal life like I have a really hard time (laughs) Maintaining a social Life and like being there with friends and with the world outside Mm -hmm. and simultaneously trying to think as a writer. And so I have to kind of waffle back and forth between the two of them, Um, Mm -hmm. which means that when I'm out in the world, I'm not doing a ton of writing. And when I'm writing, I'm really bad at being a person. (laughs) (laughs) So right now I'm deep in the writing and I'm like, oh my God, why Why am I doing (laughs) this? I don't have any friends, I have no life, but I know that it won't feel like that once I'm done. Um, But so right now, my writing day basically consists of I'm trying to write 600 words four times a week. Um, So basically, I'm aiming for around 2,500 words a week, which for Mm -hmm. fiction writers, I think is pretty slow, but I still very much write like a poet. So I obsess Mm -hmm. over every single line and word. Um, For those of you listening who don't know me or my work, I... um, My background is in poetry primarily, I had a book called The Lumberjack's Dove, which came out a couple years ago, which is a book of poetry, so I really lived in the poet world for a Mm -hmm. while, and I'm just starting to make my fiction debut currently, I just sold two books, uh, a short story collection that I'd already written, and this novel that I'm still working on, so... Yeah, I'm kind of just making it up as I go along, to be perfectly honest. But yeah, I'm trying to get those words in every day. But most of that time is me just like staring at my laptop and scrolling through Twitter and just being like, why am I doing this to myself? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm one of those writers who actually absolutely hates the act of writing, but (laughs) like loves having written something so much that I'm like, yeah, that was worth it. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of people who are on that same page with you. I find it really heartening when I hear of other people that feel that way, because I feel like I used to feel quite insecure about it, where I was like, man, if I hate doing this so much, then I maybe I'm not supposed to be a writer. Um, and then the more I heard from other professional writers who feel the same way, who were like, oh, no, writing is incredibly difficult for me and like mm-hmm. pretty torturous to pull myself through – um, the more I was like, oh, maybe that's okay. Maybe it's okay to feel sort of bogged down by the labor of drafting, but then elated at the sort of the birthing of of creation and like having something to look on and be like, wow, I made that with my brain. And yeah, for me, that experience is so cool that the labor, I, the labor—it's okay that the labor's not fun. Like it's it's work, you know
0: hmm Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people like having the finished product in their hand and knowing they accomplished something, but the matter of accomplishing something is just not as fun or enjoyable as you anticipate it to be.
1: Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that it's easy to forget that like making art is work. It's, mm-hmm. it's a labor and like many things worth doing are laborious. And that doesn't mean that you that they're not worth it or that you shouldn't be doing them just because something's difficult or... Yeah, I don't... I, And I think there are all the also these moments of transcendence throughout it. Like, I'll be mm-hmm. bogged down and kind of like tweezing word after word after word out of my brain and then one day I'll sit down and it'll be this like heightened experience where the words just pour out and everything's perfect and I'm like, damn, that's what I like to see. <laughs> and of course we wish every day could be like that. But um, yeah, it's, it's not necessarily that way. And that's okay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is very true. And so you said, when you're done with the work, you'll sit down and you don't really write anything for a while. How do you know how to get out of that zone? Do you just get new ideas? Or how do you motivate yourself to write once you kind of hit that zone?
1: The, when I'm in the person zone, how do I know when to go yeah. back into the writing? That's a good question. Um, for the last couple years, I've been really project-oriented. I work really well with a deadline, so um, so if there's someone expecting a piece of writing from me, I love being able to use that as an excuse to sit down and do it. Um, but it's also, I start to just feel really bad if I haven't written for a while. Uh, I first noticed this when I was in college. Honestly, like, the way I figured out I wanted to be a writer was uh, when I was probably, like, 18. I would just started college, and I started noticing that I would go these bouts of writing a bunch of poems, and then I would stop. And after a while of taking a break, I would start to just feel incredibly despondent. And then I'd start writing and then it would go away and then I'd stop and it would come back. And it didn't take me that long before I was like, huh, maybe these things are connected. (laughs) And uh, I really, at the time, I didn't want to be a professional writer. Um, I sort of had psyched myself out with this idea that the life of a writer is just too difficult, too inconsistent, um, too unpredictable. And so I would do something far more Like reasonable than that. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I kind of realized that I was only happy when I was writing. And if I went too long without writing, I just didn't feel connected to myself in the way I wanted to. And at that point, I was like, okay, obviously, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is still sort of how I tell when it's time to go back under, is if I start to feel off, chances are, it's because I am neglecting my my craft and i need to keep doing it it's yeah it's sort of just how half of my brain eats i guess Mm -hmm. is by (laughs) writing and so it starts starving if i neglect it for too long and then other times it's just like i think of an idea and get really excited about it and just want to work on it Mm -hmm. um yeah but i'm really i'm i kind of can't even remember what life when I'm not writing is like when I'm writing like right now I'm so deep in it that I'm like what is society what is life without a deadline um and I think of it as this like grass is always greener thing where I'm like "Ooh, maybe in a month I'll be able to wake up without feeling guilty (laughs) imagine (laughs) so we'll see I'll let you know when I get there yeah
0: hopefully hopefully you can get there soon
1: (laughs) It's on track. I'm, uh, I'm about eighty thousand words into the novel right now, wow. which is crazy. <laughs> yeah, like I've, I've never. There's so many damn words in a novel. I don't know if you knew this,
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: but there's a bunch of words in there. Uh, my last book, *The Lumberjack's Dove*, as a poetry collection, that was only seven thousand words. <laughs> oh wow! And so, in contrast to that, I'm like Jesus Christ. There's so many words, and it's, it's an interesting process. Working on such a long form piece because I'm used to being able to sit down and read what I've written so far from start to finish in a sitting in order to like remind myself of the tone and the arc and all that. Um, And I'm finding that with this novel, it's impossible to do that. I can't read up until the point I've written at in one sitting. And so it feels a little bit like I'm playing a game of telephone where I'm just like basing the tone of the current chapter on the tone of the one before that and the tone of that chapter on the one before that and just like hoping that they add up so but i i'm confident it's gonna turn out cool
0: <laughs> i'm sure
1: but it's definitely like a wild learning experience
0: yeah yeah i'm sure what prompted you to take that leap from poetry to prose
1: I have always really, really loved short stories specifically. I've felt that short stories are sort of the perfect literary form. All of my like absolute favorite writers, the ones who've influenced me the most, uh, are short story writers. Uh, specifically, like Kelly Link, Karen Russell, Helena Uyemi, uh, Amy Bender, Angela Carter. All of these writers who are fantasist, fabilist, uh like modern fairy tale writers, essentially. And I'm also really fascinated by the fairy tale and the folk tale, which are sort of short stories of the oral tradition. And so I, I really wanted to write in the tradition that I was reading. I was finding that I was writing all this poetry while I was mostly reading uh, short stories. And so I was like, okay, well, I'd really love to write some short stories. I'd like, I had this dream of of placing myself within the same literary tradition of my heroes and like kind of entering that world and paying homage to that. And so I started writing these short stories. And then honestly with the novel, it was like (laughs) on a base like dumb writing biz level. Novels sell more easily than short stories and more easily than poetry. And so my agent was like, you should write a novel. And I was like, if you're going to sell a novel, I'll write a novel. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I did. Or, well, I will. (laughs) (laughs) I will. (laughs) Yes, I confidently say I will. Yeah, it's almost done. Um, I'm in, like, the final eighth of the book. That's really close. Yeah.
0: And... I'm obviously assuming you can't talk about what's in the book yet, but what do you think has been the most exciting part of this process?
1: Um, well, I can give some little teasers about it, but um, the most exciting part—the um, most exciting part—I think has been realizing that I'm capable of doing it. I feel like mm-hmm. any time you embark on a a new skill or a new project, there's always this part of your head that's like well we'll see how this works out (laughs) Um, and it's yeah it's been really heartening to be like oh I can actually do this Um, but from a sort of plot perspective and a context perspective so the the novel itself I can say is uh, it's about these two siblings who inherit a house on chicken legs Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Baba Yaga do you know this folktale? No. So Baba Yaga is a russian folk figure and she lives in a house on chicken legs she's this sort of crone witch uh, woman who yeah lives in this house on chicken legs that runs through the forest and so i've kind of plucked from this folklore tradition and Mm -hmm. put it into my own context which is yeah these two siblings inherit this house and they convert it into a puppetry theater and start touring america and meanwhile they're being pursued by this dark force And it's inspired by, in addition to the Baba Yaga stories, um, my own personal ancestral history on my mother's side, which is a Russian Jewish. And we, my family left Russia three generations ago to escape pogroms, uh, Mm -hmm. where the pogroms were destroying the small villages. the imperial army and the Cossacks were just torching all the Jewish villages. And so mm-hmm. it's using this sort of history of trauma uh, interwoven with this modern adventure story to kind of rework the Babiaga folk tale into that context. So that's kind of the premise of it. But so one of the really exciting things about that is uh, being able to use the writing process to learn more about my own family's history, and to connect more with that side of my ancestry. Because I've never really delved into that quite as in quite as scholarly and like, deliberately away as I have been now as research for this book. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like it's this interesting parallel experience where while I'm learning information for the book, I'm also learning information about myself and my history that I didn't previously know. Yeah, that that sounds so interesting that
0: that concept really sounds like a combination of you getting to appreciate and learn about your family history and then read stories and pay attention or read stories and go back and reference a tale that you loved.
1: Yeah, totally. And I mean, I love I love messing with old folktales and making mm-hmm. them new and, and old and scrambling them up. And I think that that's one of the things I love about folklore is that they're designed to do that. The mm-hmm. reason that they survive so long is because they have this uncanny ability to adapt to the teller and adapt to the time and place in which the story is told. So mm-hmm. it's always exciting to be part of that chain, to be like a link in the chain of a story. Yeah, yeah, that is so cool. And so
0: going back to what we were talking about earlier, your poetry. So your debut book, The Lumberjack's Dove, was published in 2018.
1: So how did you develop that idea? That was actually a really interesting start because I got the idea for The Lumberjack's Dove from a writing prompt. So, yeah, this is a big PSA for writing prompts. (laughs) Uh, They can really do right by you. I was living in Chicago at the time. I lived there briefly for less than a year. uh, And I was an intern at this little writer's theater there. So it was like a playwright's theater. And I remember it was the winter that Lake Michigan froze solid. (laughs) And I moved there in January. So it was just this, like, frigid miserable time and no one would leave their houses so it was impossible to really meet anybody and i was new to this city and i was like oh oh god what have i done <laughs> but um i ended up going to this little writing workshop that is run by a poet named marty mcconnell and it's called vox ferris she hosts it just in her living room and a group of like five or six poets will gather there and share a couple bottles of wine and Uh, edit each other's work and then every session Marty offers a writing prompt and we do a little free write and then sort of that's that and the the night I was there the prompt that she offered was name an object and now name a part of the body and now replace the part of the body with the object It's a good prompt. You should write it down, like if you're listening and you need something to jog your imagination. Yeah, part of the body, object. Now replace the part of the body with the object. Um, I happen to write down hand and dove. And if you've read The Lumberjack's Dove, uh, the book is about a woodsman who accidentally severs his hand with an axe and the hand turns into a dove. And then he goes on this journey to try and get it turned back into a hand which doesn't mm-hmm. go quite as planned. But yeah, so that entire idea of this hand transforming into this dove came from this sort of surrealist writing prompt. And that night I went home and I kind of liked the little passage I jotted down based on this idea, mm-hmm. and I decided I wanted to keep, keep working on it. And so I had this concept of writing it in these little cubes, which the book is, is told in these like small little compact cubes mm-hmm. that coalesce into one story. And um, my friend Julia Story had a book called post which was told in that format. And so I really mm. wanted to just steal it for myself and use it. <laughs> so I plagiarized my friend's format and <laughs> put it in cubes. And uh, yeah, and just thought I wanted to experiment with bringing this idea of this this hand and this dove out and just like write a couple cubes a day and see where it went. And that was the origin of that. And then it kind of unfurled into an entire book. That's so interesting. That is a really cool prompt. Yeah, I love those prompts that make you, that make you write something you would never otherwise think to write. And I think that's really, Mm. I mean, when I teach writing, that's always kind of my goal. I think it's sort of my role as a teacher is how do you get your students to step outside of the same like loop that they've been running in and draw something up that they never otherwise would have thought of and i definitely never would have found those particular connections without that prompt so
0: yeah that that sounds very fruitful (laughs) so You obviously liked the idea and you went home and started writing that. How long did that writing process
1: take you? So that was one that I kind of picked up and put down and picked up again over the course of about a year, year and a half. Um, If I were to condense the amount of actual time I spent writing it, I probably wrote the whole book in three to four months. Um, But that was over the course of about a year and a half where I worked on it a little bit in Chicago. I got maybe 20 pages of it done. Um, or like 20 cubes of it done. And then uh, I put it down and kind of forgot about it. And then almost a year later, I ended up moving to Paris for a little while. And I was living at the Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris, which is this English language literary hub right next to Notre Dame. And they let writers just come and sleep for free on the floor. Um,
0: That's so cool. (laughs)
1: Yes, it was a very like absurd bohemian experience, which was just like, me and a few other writers in their early 20s because i was about 22 at the time 23 mm-hmm. and uh we would just like drink wine and eat cheap pasta every night by the seine <laughs> and and like recite our poetry to each other it was <laughs> very <Awesome>. silly <laughs> yeah and so yeah while i was there every day i would write i think my goal was write like four cubes a day mm-hmm. uh every day i was there and i spent about two and a half months living at the shop doing that, and then got back to Vermont, which is where I'm from, and moved into my friend Kirk's house, which is this big beautiful farmhouse out in the middle of the woods, and he's a puppeteer, and so it was this very whimsical puppet house, and uh, yeah, and I completed the writing of the book then. Uh, So yeah, the drafting process was written in three different locales in two different countries, and uh, took about a year and a half and then of course the editing process was a whole other bag and I was submitting it for about a year before it got picked up and then once it was picked up uh, Louise Glick who selected it she edited the piece with me and so we spent another few months kind of reworking it and mercilessly chopping it apart and making it all that it could be
0: was going through that editing process difficult for you, since it was sort of your first full-length work?
1: It was great. I loved it because, I mean, because it was sort of my big break. Um, it was, you know, it won the National Poetry Series, so I knew it was going to be coming out. It came out with Echo under Harper Collins, so it was like my first major publication. I'd had other works published by independent presses, which I am a huge fan of and are all wonderful. Um, mm-hmm but this was my first full length with a major press and so i was i really wanted it to be all it could be you know like i knew it was going to represent me out in the world for the first time in this major way and so the fact that i had this opportunity to really indulgently tinker with it and work on it and have this brilliant poet louise glick as as the editor working on it um it was great and I'm not super squeamish about criticism and I think that you really have to learn to be able to take a hit if you're gonna be a writer because it's super important to be able to get feedback and you know you want your pieces to be strong and the way to be able to do that is to listen to what your readers are experiencing so but yeah she would just brutalize me (laughs) like some of the comments on it were just like this is inept writing And I'd be like, all right, tell me how you really feel. Uh, But it was incredible and she's brilliant. And um, to me, it was like a really satisfying process. Because also when I originally submitted the manuscript, I didn't feel like it was ready. I didn't feel like it was actually done. And I almost didn't submit it. But a friend of mine like cajoled me into it. And so the editing for me was like the chance to actually finish it Um, because I knew that there were certain things of it that could be stronger and weren't working as well as they could have been Uh, and yeah so and I just wanted it to be good (laughs) yes, you know so so no it was great Um, and I I actually really enjoy the editing process because that's when I feel like okay like this is going to be something that feels tight and Mm -hmm. that feels good. That's great that you
0: had such a can do attitude about that, because I know I come from more of a journalism background, but I know when someone touches your piece, a lot of people will be like, that's my baby. Like, don't like an editing can feel like criticism a lot of times, but that's so cool that it felt like you were truly getting to experience and finish out your book.
1: Yeah, well, and I think who your reader and editor is is huge as well, you know? Mm -hmm. Where, like, I really trusted Louise. Um, And the great thing about the editing process was so many of the criticisms that she had, so many of the suggestions that she had were things that I, like, kind of already knew weren't working and was hoping no one would notice. (laughs) And so more than feeling criticized, I felt, like, held accountable, which I think is... To me, that feels like the perfect form of editing a book is, like, you, they tell you what you already know and kind of hoped you wouldn't have to deal with.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think being held accountable is the right term for that. <laughs> and so, like you said, it was selected as a winner of the National Poetry Series. What, what was that like for you?
1: It was so bonkers. <laughs> it was, I was so excited. Um, I got the call when I was walking down the street on my way to my friend Cassandra de Alba's, who's an incredible poet as well. And I, it was like a really hot, sunny day. And at first I, you know, I, I answered the phone and at first I thought it was like a spam call because I didn't recognize the number and it was coming from New Jersey. And She said, you know, like, I'm calling from the National Poetry Series and just wanted to let you know that your book was selected. And I just kind of blacked out. Well, I think, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on this podcast, but I definitely swore on the phone at this woman. And she seemed, like, rather taken aback. And then I was like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Can you repeat that? I don't, what did you just say to me? (laughs) And, uh, yeah, then I basically kind of blacked out a a little bit. And then I called my family and let them know and i uh i well when i called my dad i was like sort of sobbing and he thought that i'd been like hit by a car or something (sighs) like that uh so that was startling i think for everyone involved um and then (laughs) i ended up actually calling every single one of my exes in a row i don't know (laughs) what came i (laughs) i was delirious and i mean it was like this had been my dream for my entire life, and I, it was something that I didn't necessarily think was going to happen for me, or something that was actually achievable. And so, yeah, no, I just, like, went a little nuts for a bit and <laughs> got a little overexcited. Um, though I do feel like the thing about me calling all my exes sounds more unhinged than it actually was, Which is that uh, all of them had either helped as readers or as editors at some point in the process. Um, Because I have a lot of supportive people that I am close to still. And uh, so it was relevant to inform them of the news, but it does make for a good anecdote. No, yeah, that
0: makes sense. That's a really understandable reaction for such a big honor.
1: (laughs) And I mean, on a more longer scale sort of reflection on the experience um, it just really it lent me a lot of confidence in myself that I mean it shouldn't take something like a publication or a prize to to do that but uh, to sort of make you feel like your work is worthy because it's not like it changes the work the work is still the work but uh, yeah it just gave me this confidence in myself to be like okay what I've been writing like the people on the other end of this the people reading it are actually connecting with it um and then it served as this really wonderful door into all these other great things in my life and I ended up going on an eight month long book tour with it all across the United States where I was in a new city every two days I did almost a hundred readings um and so it kind of became this like train ticket almost into all of these adventures which was really kind of a wonderful result
0: yeah yeah
1: that sounds so cool
0: and so aside from your writing well I guess this is still writing involved you're you also started a company called the traveling poetry emporium tell me a little bit about how you got that idea
1: yeah totally so the traveling poetry emporium is a team of poets for hire and we compose poems to order on antique typewriters. And actually the two poets I've already mentioned in this little interview, uh, Julia Story of Post Moxie and Cassandra de Alba, whose house I was headed towards when I got the good news. Mm -hmm. Um, They are both my colleagues in the Traveling Poetry Emporium. So the three of us compose poems to order on whatever topics were given on the spot on these mid-century Hermes rocket antique typewriters, <laughs> and when I first started writing poems to order, it was when I was still in college, and I I wanted to travel after I graduated, and so and I wanted to travel in a way that allowed me to upkeep my writing practice while also letting me make a little food and beer money on the way, and like have a way to engage with the communities I was in, and I knew I was planning to like fly over to europe after i finished school and just do some backpacking around um growing up some of those stories that of my dad's that i grew up on was he was like a train hopper and a hitchhiker all through his 20s and so i always knew that i was gonna do that same sort of thing when i came of age (laughs) which i think as soon as i got old enough my dad was like ah crap why did i tell her all those stories now she's doing it (laughs) But, um, yeah, so I wanted to travel, I wanted to make money, so I started writing poems to order on the street while traveling once I got over there um, to, to pay my way across. And it ended up being, like, a really wonderful way of engaging with these cities where I didn't know anybody. I would, like, roll into town. I had a typewriter, a collapsible table, a little tablecloth, and a sign in my backpack. And I would just drag them out of my pack, unfurl my wares, pop them up, and then people could walk up to my table, offer any topic they wanted, and I'd compose a poem for them on the spot within five minutes, hand it to them to keep, and they would donate whatever they felt like it merited in exchange. Um, And I was able to pay my way across Europe that way, and it kind of worked so well that when I got back to the States, I quit all my other jobs, (laughs) and I just started... Busking uh, poems, so I was really a street Mm -hmm. poet for years Writing poems to order out on various streets in whatever cities I lived in Mm -hmm. And then yeah over the years I sort of I kind of got sick of the Inconsistency of busking Um, Though I do still I have so much respect for buskers and I I still do busk from time to time Because Mm -hmm. there's like a real spark in it. I think you're you're really a part of the environment that you're in in this Mm. really tangible way and accessible art is so important as well um but i also got kind of sick of being by myself all the time doing it and i wanted a crew that could sort of get what i was going through and doing and we could do it as sort of a camaraderie type activity and so yeah i contacted julie and i contacted cass both of whom whose work i really loved and trained them to do what I was doing and then we formed this company where now we go to museums and universities and sometimes corporate events and all sorts of like strange places and events and uh audiences and we do the same thing I was doing out on the street but in a fancy place <laughs> And wow. yeah, and it's fun because now we get to travel with it and we get to write poems on every imaginable topic and we get to do it with our friends.
0: Wow, that that is so cool, especially that you, you I can't believe you paid your way through Europe doing that. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was great. And I mean, I, I think I had some money saved up ahead of time, so it wasn't, I think i bought like a URL pass ahead. So the one thing Mm. that I paid was this train pass and then like, but all of my food and everything else was a was the busking money. And yeah, it was a really great way to spend my 20s.
0: I'm sure yeah. When you first started, was it difficult trying to come up with stuff to write about right on the spot?
1: It was an interesting learning process because I don't remember the subjects being difficult because, it, you know, they're essentially a writing prompt if someone's like, okay, hey, please write me a poem about chrysanthemums. Then you just start writing a poem about chry- chrysanthemums and like, you've got the root already. It's sort of like the diving board that lets you into the poem. But mm-hmm. uh, my pacing improved dramatically uh, where I really had to learn to just type and like not, you know, you can't question what you're writing because mm-hmm. you can't really delete and you can't stop and think, or else the clock doesn't stop with you, you know? Yeah. And so when I was first doing it, for one, I was writing them twice as long. I currently write them on a quarter of an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. So it's like the size of a postcard. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, the, the poems tend to be about 15 lines long. So they're they're full length poems. But at the time, I was writing them on a, on twice that amount of space. So for one, the poems were twice as long. They were like 30 lines long. Oh, wow. (laughs) And it was taking me like 20 minutes to write each one. Um, And so people were getting antsy for their (laughs) poems. And so, yeah, it definitely took me a little while to like really get it down. But what was so interesting is that like when I got to the point that I was writing poems to order every day, it really did feel like a muscle that I had strengthened where I could totally just sit down and like churn out... 30 poems in a row and like be fine where when i first started doing it i would write like five or six and they'd take me a long time and i'd be incredibly fatigued and like very emotionally drained um Mm. but yeah the more i did it the more sort of stamina i had for it as well uh yeah it was interesting to kind of watch that very (laughs) odd very specific muscle develop (laughs) Uh, and it also oddly enough it didn't translate at all into my own writing like I I think of them as completely different things and so yeah even though I can sit down and write a poem to order for someone else in five ten minutes I can't do that with my own you know when I write a poem for myself it takes an hour or two hours more Mm -hmm. um so they're very different parts of the brain somehow
0: wow that that's so interesting. I know you've touched on a lot of things you liked about that, but do you think you'd a favorite part of starting that business and getting involved with that?
1: Um, I think like, like the same way I feel that the National Poetry Series was so valuable because it was like this ticket that led me out into the world. I think Poems to Order was a similar thing for me where it allowed me to connect with so many people I otherwise wouldn't have had the chance to connect to. And Mm -hmm. what's so interesting about poems to order to me is like, I've kind of gone back and forth over the past decade uh, about poems to order as a concept in general, because there were times when I felt really icky about it in certain ways where I was like, you can't write a good poem in, in five minutes, you know, like the quality of these poems are so, They wouldn't necessarily stand on their own two feet outside of the context in which they're generated, um, Mm -hmm. where it's almost a performance more than it is a piece of writing. Mm -hmm. And that I felt kind of weird about that for a while. But then I came to sort of realize that poems to order for me was less about the poem and more about the connection with the person who came asking for that poem. So when someone sits down at my little poetry booth and they ask for a poem about something, they're often revealing something about themselves that they otherwise wouldn't reveal or that they might not be discussing with other people. And that person may not have had a moment where they felt seen or felt listened to uh, in who knows how long. And so it was this opportunity for someone to sit down, tell me something that they cared about, and me to say, yeah, I hear you, I see you, and here is a poem where that is reflected back to you. Um, So it really just, yeah, it was a moment of human connection where I could help people feel seen, and kind of that was the gift more than the poem itself in a way. So to me, that ended up being what was the most exciting thing about it, and the most kind of meaningful lasting thing was, was, It was a vehicle for human connection
0: yeah that makes sense that's that's such an interesting way of putting it that's really cool and so i have a few questions that i ask everyone who comes on the show so the first one is if you could go back in time to when you first began writing what advice would you give yourself
1: oh man well, I first began writing when I was, like, three. Okay, maybe... maybe. <laughs> so maybe I'll jump forward. Yeah, exactly. Um, what advice would I give myself? Jeez. Um, it's interesting because I feel really happy with where I've ended up at this point in my writing life. So, like, I kind of want young me to to just keep doing what I was doing. But I... Hmm... I might just, like, give myself a little pat on the shoulder and just be like, yep, you're doing a good job. (laughs) Keep doing what you're doing. Um, But I also might recommend... I feel like there's certain things in my current life as a writer that I feel like are missing that maybe I would recommend to my younger self to get a head start on um, so that I'd have them by now, which is I, I might tell myself to try to find... A group of other writers to have like a regular writing workshop with Mm -hmm. Um, because I feel like outside of a academic context you don't often have people who are regularly checking in with each other's work and chatting about it and I know so many people now who have these amazing writing groups where they share their work and they can all be excited about each other's stuff and I think mm-hmm. if I'd had that when I was younger, I would have felt much less isolated. Um, for me, writing as a pursuit is a very solitary one, or it has been a very solitary one, and sort of a lonesome thing, which kind of as I was talking about earlier, a, I can either be a writer or a person at any <laughs> given time. Um, and yeah, I might recommend to my younger self like, to try to bridge that gap a little bit better, <laughs> which is still something I'm working on.
0: Yeah, yeah, writing with company is definitely enjoyable, and obviously that was
1: very fruitful for you. Yeah, totally, yeah. and so yeah, to find more opportunities to connect with people over writing and that you don't have to just be a writer or a person, but maybe yeah. both. <laughs>
0: And what advice do you have for other female writers in particular?
1: I think that for a lot of women we have this kind of internalized um, naysaying voice in a way this mm-hmm. this sort of self-editor where which men aren't raised with necessarily this same filter. So for example I feel like women are often raised with this idea not even that they were directly told it but it just seeps into us through the patriarchal culture we live in um that like if we're gonna put something out in the world it better be killer like it better be perfect um and it better be worthy and men are chucking mediocre shit out all the time (laughs) without thinking twice about it um and so i think that the the Number one advice I would give is, like, other people in the world are, if, if they're going to reject your work, they're going to reject your work. But you don't have to do that for them. Like, yeah. make what you want to make and put it out there. And don't apologize for it. And don't, you know, don't withhold it because you're afraid that maybe it's not perfect or maybe someone else's is better. Um, just, yeah, I feel like I saw a tweet once that said, like, live with the confidence of a mediocre white man and i've seen that (laughs) yeah i feel like it's that sort of essence is like and you know that's very glib but i think there's a real truth in it that you know to to not withhold something you know because you think it won't do well instead like let the world decide that and just put your stuff out there and like be bold in that yeah yeah be unapologetic yeah yeah And don't kind of be your own rejection committee. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a very dumb, like, coffee table book that my family used to have, which was, I don't know if you remember this blog, but there was this blog called Shit My Dad Says, which were just, like, quotes of this guy's dad saying, yeah, so they had, like, a little book with these quotes of this guy's dad saying, like, strange things, and one of the things in there (laughs) I always think of as really great creative advice, which is in this same wheelhouse um, where he's talking about some girl at school who he thinks is like really hot, but like out of his league. And his dad is like, look, son, women are going to come up with enough reasons to turn you down. You don't have to come up with reasons for them. (laughs) And yeah, I think it's very good (laughs) writing advice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah that makes sense and i know there are a lot but what do you think is the most important skill that a writer can have
1: um i think that the most important skill would be stamina and perseverance like you got to be able to finish something yeah so being um i trying to think of the right word for it but yeah being sort of stubbornly persistent and being able to keep at something. Um, So it's almost like organizational skills in a way is you have to have that creative fire, yes, but underneath it all, you have to have like a real work ethic um, in order to get anything done, unless you're writing like haiku. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I think the most important skill would definitely be to train yourself to see something through to the end. Yeah. Yeah, that is very important. Because I think the rest like the real heart of being a writer, of course, is like being able to imagine and being able to hope and being able to dream. But I don't know if I would call those skills, you know. Those are just parts of being a person. Yeah. Um and so when I think of skills, I think of something that's almost like a like a foundation or a framework in on which to drape all of those more magical elements of creativity Mm -hmm. so yeah if you have that framework of being able to get something done and like really sit down in front of your laptop or your notebook even when you don't feel like it um, then you really have a frame to drape all of that imagination and and conjuring on top of
0: yeah yeah that's a great way of putting it Are there any books or publications stories that you've read that have seriously changed how you approach writing or what topics you like to cover
1: oh yeah absolutely (laughs) so i feel like every interview i've ever given um i talk up kelly link who is my favorite writer of all time but Mm -hmm. she when i first read her work she's a short story writer and um it like blew me out of the water because i felt like it It felt to me like I was reading the inside of my own brain, which had never happened to me before in writing. Like I'd always loved reading um, and I'd connected with books before, but I'd never read something where I was like, this is exactly how I think. Um, And it gave me this like real sense of like, oh, I'm allowed to write the way that I think. And I realized that I'd been kind of altering my writing to fit the way I'd seen other people's thinking Mm -hmm. and not necessarily reflecting so accurately my own um and so yeah kelly link that was a stranger things happen was the name of the book um also her book magic for beginners i read shortly after and had a similar effect where they just they were very affirming for me um and then there were i'm trying to think of like poets and uh so Um, When I wrote Lumberjack's Dove, I had just read The Autobiography of Red by Anne Carson, which is almost a novel in verse and a retold myth. And so that got me thinking a lot about uh, sort of blended genres and forms and what is a poem and what is a folktale and what is a novel um, and how can those be scrambled up. Um, Also, I always say that, like, the one piece of media that has influenced me more than anything else in the entire world is Buffy the Vampire Slayer, <laughs> which in my humble opinion is the greatest story ever told. And I would say like, yeah, 90% of who I am as a person is informed <laughs> by my deep lifelong love of Buffy. That is
0: a wide variety of pieces, but I, th- I think that's good and keeps you make sure you have diverse skills as a writer
1: yeah and honestly they're not as different from each other as one might think (laughs) like they all involve um the magical and the supernatural and the folkloric to serve as a metaphor for actual concrete human experience and emotion which is sort of my main mission as well as a writer so yeah
0: yeah that does make sense do you have a favorite story or
1: poem that you've written? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> hmm. I mean, I think my favorite is always whatever I've written last, you know? Yeah. Um, but there are a couple short stories in the collection that I have coming out, the short story collection, uh, 50 Beasts to Break Your Heart that I sold alongside the novel that i think i'm really excited about because they're very weird and very spooky and very sad and those are the three emotions that i like the most (laughs) (laughs) um one of them has already come out uh called a diviner's abecedarian and it is uh so an abecedarian is like usually it's a poem where the first line or the first letter of each line is each letter of the alphabet in order. So it's like A, B, C, D, and that starts off each line of the poem. Um, In this version, it's an alphabetized list of different kinds of divination. And this little list also tells a story about um, these kind of demonic middle school girls (laughs) uh, based on my own middle school hellscape experience. And I really liked how that came out That might be one of my favorite things I've written recently Um, And yeah there's a couple more stories In that collection that I Feel like That I feel like are really speaking to My brain right now And the things that I'm interested in But yeah
0: That piece sounds really interesting
1: Yeah it's it's Up in uh, the American Scholar online if you want to read it It is available for Eyes look
0: at I'll have to go take a look (laughs) and when people read your work what do you hope their biggest takeaway is
1: I hope that I, I think that the readers of my work who the work is really meant for are people who are going to see it and see something of themselves in it and feel like they have language for something that they may not have had language for previously. Um, Everything that I write uh, uses this idea of the supernatural or the surreal to represent actual human experiences, just like all my favorite stories. And so for me, when I read a a surrealist or a fantasist story, what I get so excited about is that I am like, oh man, this this emotion that I've been feeling is represented so clearly in this sort of fantastical description. So the example I like to give is, with magical realism, you know, if you have a broken heart in real life, you feel bad and the world around you is pretty much unchanged and it doesn't tangibly or logically alter the fabric of reality. But in magical realism, you have a broken heart and suddenly your entire body shatters into glass. And to me, that feels so much more real than the logic of our reality um, because it represents what it actually feels like to be a person. And so, yeah, when people read my work, I hope that they have that experience of, of feeling like they've received this image that concretely represents the way that they feel in the world, in a way that makes them feel seen, and then also in a way that helps them to process and interpret their own experiences. That's so cool.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think fiction and writing are a great way to interpret your own experiences and examine your own life.
1: I mean, I think that's what it's all about, right? Is It's communication, and it's a way to help us all feel less alone and provide solidarity and. It's all about connecting. Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. And so that's all I have. But thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate you taking your time to talk
1: with me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. This was fun.
0: Once again, a huge thank you to Jenna Rose for joining me on the show. To learn more about her and her work, you can go to her website, jennarose.mystrikingly.com learn more about this podcast you can find us at she wrote that pod on twitter and at she wrote that podcast on instagram and facebook make sure to subscribe follow and give us a review wherever you get your podcast thanks
1: for listening we'll see you next week